over the past four Sundays, we've been interacting this exchange between Nicodemus, this great religious teacher of Israel, and our Lord Jesus regarding salvation, being born again or being born from above. Biblically, this, this theme is regeneration, how a soul is, is born from darkness unto life. It's the work of God in the soul called regeneration. And going back to the very first of the, these messages we looked at in verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 3, we saw the need for being born from above, the need for being born from God. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that being born again is required in order to have a saving relationship with God. If you're not born by God through this work of God upon the soul, it doesn't matter how religious you are, you cannot have access into the kingdom of God. And time won't allow us to go back and re-preach that message, but standing, the one that, that Jesus is speaking these words to is Nicodemus himself, who has all of the religious external credentials one could hope for. If anyone, based on externals, was going to have a place in the kingdom of God, it was going to be Nicodemus. But to this one, Jesus says... Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, I see into your heart. I know what's in your heart. And I see God has not done that work upon your heart, giving you the new birth. You must be born again. The necessity, the need of being born from above if there's going to be any place in the kingdom of God. The second thing we saw, and we spent two weeks on this one, the impossibility of being born again. And we saw that in verses 4 through 8. The impossibility of being born again by your own efforts, by your merits, by your religion, by your profession of faith, by your repentance, by your baptism. Anything you do counts this much for your entrance into the kingdom of God. And we saw over the course of the past two weeks, being born again, Jesus' message to Nicodemus is entirely, wholly, fully the work of God. You, Nicodemus, you, Covenant Life Church, cannot do anything to contribute to you being born again. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God alone. There is zero that you contribute there is zero that you do to bring about regeneration of your heart. It's all of God. For the past several weeks, we've been singing a song at the close of the message, Not What My Hands Have Done. I tend to pick songs for us to sing at the beginning and after the worship service that have everything to do with what we're talking about today. This morning we were singing upon the cross. We'll be talking in great lengths about the cross. But over the past several weeks, we've been singing, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh, no matter how religious and good it is, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel, not what I do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers, not all my sighs, not all my tears. Nothing can bear my awful load. And the song goes on, it's you, O oh God. My hope is you, through Christ and the work of the Spirit. I praise you, O oh God, 
My hope is you. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus in verses 4 through 8, it's the Holy Spirit of God who imparts new life into the true believer's spiritually lifeless soul. It is the Holy Spirit of God who causes a heart that is dead to God to become spiritually alive. And we closed out last week talking about how the the Holy Spirit of, of God works as He wants. He's sovereign. We don't understand it. We try to, you can look back through church history and try to try to piggyback off of trends in the Holy Spirit's work. You can't do it. Just like you, you can't tell where the wind blows, what direction it comes from, how fast it's going to be, when it's going to blow. You can't predict those things. So it is with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who works in the soul of an individual for the glory of God to bring life to that which was dead. And what it produces in the life of the believer can be seen. A repentance toward God, a faith in Jesus Christ. Again, that's not something the believer does. That's a grace that the Spirit of God gives to the believer. When a believer repents and professes faith, it's not, I'm so proud of you. It is Ephesians 2, 89, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. That faith is a gift of God, not of anything you did. Lest you try to boast, lest you try to say, but God, I believed, I repented, I was baptized, I professed faith. Sit down with that stuff. Everything God does is for his glory, to make much of himself. And even the transformation of a soul from darkness to life that leads to repentance and faith and a transformation of affections. Where the the Holy Spirit of God brings new life, it produces a love for Jesus. Not just knowledge about Jesus. Nicodemus has that. Satan has that. Judas had that. Countless of those who followed Jesus in that day to whom Jesus did not give himself to, they had knowledge about Jesus. What the Spirit produces is a love for Christ that surpasses all other loves. That makes even your love for your spouse look like hatred. Isn't that what Jesus says? Your love for me ought to be such that your spouse is jealous. Your children wonder why you don't love them the way you love Jesus. And beloved, the message of Jesus to Nicodemus, where you don't see this, you have no reason to have confidence New life has been born. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So we've seen the need for being born from above, the impossibility of being born by your own efforts because spiritual rebirth comes solely by the work of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we look at the lifted up Christ that accomplishes being born from again. It's a little clumsy title. The lifted up Christ that accomplishes being born from above. We look at this because we've been looking at the first eight verses. And now we come to verses 9 through 15. We're continuing in this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And at this point in verse 9, Nicodemus, probably like some of you, maybe all of us, is dumbfounded. 
Nicodemus is dumbfounded by everything Jesus has said in verses 1 through 8. This goes against a lifetime of teaching that Nicodemus had heard. This goes against everything he had been brought. This goes against what his parents had taught him. This goes against what his religious upbringing in Judaism taught him. This is undoing a lifetime of things that he had been taught. And he is dumbfounded. His entire category for understanding the doctrine of salvation has now been flipped upside down. It's imploded. And may I submit to you, it needed to be. That's a good thing. He was not entering the kingdom of heaven upon the basis of his understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Despite all of his background, despite all of his knowledge, his religion, his religious teaching from the Old Testament. Remember, he's the great teacher in Israel is what Jesus calls him. Despite all of that, he still must be born again. And Nicodemus just doesn't get it. And maybe some of us this morning are still in that same place. I have no doubt it's true. Not because I know your heart, but because I know the lifetime of teaching that we've grown up with. And I say this with all sincerity and humility. It's not this gospel that we've been taught. Nicodemus simply doesn't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. And he's left with uncertainty. And so you can skip down to verse 9. And even before we read the entirety of the text, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Do you understand this confusion? This goes against everything. He just doesn't get it. It's like Jesus has stripped Nicodemus naked spiritually before him. And anything Nicodemus would have previously turned to to try to clothe himself before the face of God, his good works, his religion, Jesus has tossed it into the garbage. There's nothing to hold on to. Not your church attendance, not your title in the church, not uh, not your knowledge, not your wisdom, not your teaching. You have nothing to hold on to. And Nicodemus is standing there naked before Jesus, spiritually speaking, and he doesn't know, what do I do? Beloved, stay with me. This is a good thing for Nicodemus. You need to be there as well. I need to be there as well. What do I clothe myself in before you? That's what this text is about this morning. Jesus is about to tell him. You clothe yourself in me. You clothe yourself in me. You find your hope, your confidence in me, in Jesus Christ. You see, before the face of God, beloved, this will be true of you, will be true of me, it will be true of everyone who tries to stand before God on that day, who tries to justify himself on the basis of even Christ plus works. Christ plus the flesh. Christ plus I did this, I did that. Paul talks about this in uh, his epistle to the Galatians. That moment that it's not Christ alone, it's not Christ at all. And many on that day will say, Jesus, Jesus, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And Jesus says, depart from me, just as he promises he would do to Nicodemus. I never knew you. Nicodemus has nothing to contribute to his place in God's kingdom. Covenant Life Church, are we paying attention to this? Are you paying attention? You can resist it. You can be disturbed by it. Nicodemus was too. That's not bad. 
What's bad is if you continue to resist and reject the words of our king, right? That would be a most unwise thing to do. The good news about Nicodemus is this episode's about to end. We do know how this story ends. The work of God's spirit upon his soul did take place. And we see that at Jesus' crucifixion. But what about for you? What about for me? You see, the struggle we're facing when a person is taught their entire life and a person thinks, builds a doctrine of salvation, that salvation or God's favor or their place in the kingdom of God or even the basis of their assurance of salvation is found in some combination of Christ plus things that you do. You don't know how to respond when Jesus takes away everything you've ever done and says, it doesn't matter. I have no interest in those things you've done. They don't know how to respond when Jesus says, don't you know everything you did was tainted with your sin? You're going to try to bring your good works, your religion, things that you've done to me? Your, your sinful fingerprints are all over that. Get that out of here. They just don't know how to respond. And that's where Nicodemus is when he says in verse 9, how can it be? How can it be that I must be born again. I have all this stuff. Nicodemus doesn't have a category for this. Well, let's see how Jesus responds. John chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 9. We'll read down to verse 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I do want to pray. I want to pray over these words. But I also want us to understand, even as we enter into these words, we've seen the need and we've seen the impossibility of the new birth apart from the work of the Spirit. We've got to understand the gravity of what's being said here. Nicodemus, without a doubt, on some level, represents the Jewish people in his day who had a distorted understanding of the gospel. Nicodemus is not alone in his warped view of salvation. And what does that mean? Nicodemus is what? Nicodemus is the teacher of, the, of Israel. What you have here, if Nicodemus is wrong in this, stay with me. You have a spiritually dead and blind man leading other spiritually and blind people into death. A spiritually and dead and blind person who does not know how to be saved, instructing others how to be saved. And I promise you, that's not unique to Nicodemus' day. John MacArthur says this, although Nicodemus was a renowned teacher, he proved to be a poor learner. 
His question, how can these things be, indicates he's a man who has made little progress since verse 4. He still could not accept what he was hearing from Jesus. He could not let go of his legalistic religious system and realize that salvation was a sovereign, gracious work of God's Spirit. MacArthur goes on to say, Still today, we're left with countless numbers of spiritual leaders who have no idea what it means to be born again. They're earnest, they're sincere, and they're telling people how to be born again, but they themselves don't understand John 3. And week after week, he says, we have pastors and churches who are affirming other people's salvations and who lay hands on men who have absolutely no right whatsoever, being pastors or elders or teachers of God's word and God's people. What's MacArthur saying there? It's one thing to read this about Nicodemus and kind of have this distant kind of what Mark MacArthur says, oh, understand this. We live in a generation in our own day, well-intended, earnest people who want to see people saved, who have never understood how to be saved. And it's producing what it was producing in Nicodemus's day. People walking around saying, I don't need to worry about that. I'm a Christian. I've done what the preacher, the teacher taught me how to do. And MacArthur says, it's the blind leading the blind. And while there will be so much confusion on the day of judgment, many arguing with Jesus. Beloved, this is why we pray. This is why we take a moment and we lift up this time to the Lord asking, help me understand. There's too much at stake. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it spells out to us who you are, who we are apart from you, our great sinfulness, our need of salvation, and in your great mercy where salvation is found. It's found in you by the work of your spirit upon the soul of a man. Father, this morning, we continue along with Nicodemus to wrestle with, Lord, for many of us, uh, a lifetime of teaching that just, it may not have been completely wrong, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't the full gospel, the work of you in the soul of a man. And so this morning we pray that the word of God would increase, that it would bear great fruit in our lives, in our church, around the world, that this morning even your spirit would cause dry bones to come to life by the breath and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit-inspired Word. Just as Nicodemus was confused, many of us are confused, but you're not a God of confusion. Show us Christ. Clarify these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, for your glory, amen. So, Nicodemus asks a question that probably many of us are asking. We hear you. Salvation is your work. It's what you do. How can these things be? To which Jesus kind of progresses in his responses. In verse 11, Jesus lays out before Nicodemus, look at verse 11, verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? What's he saying to Nicodemus? 
He's saying, I don't understand. You're the one who teaches from the Bible. You're the one who teaches others. And you don't understand what I'm telling you? Verse 11. Truly, I truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But here's the problem. You don't receive our testimony. What's Jesus saying here? It sounds a little clumsy here. Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? I'm dumbfounded. I'm confused. I still don't get it. And Jesus' response to him is not necessarily one of, well, I understand why you're confused. His response is, how is it possible you've had my word and you've been teaching my word and you don't understand what I'm telling you? Beloved, let's let that simmer for just a minute upon our own hearts and lives. Jesus is saying, what I've just told you in verses 1 through 8 about the new birth, about regeneration, is taught all throughout the Old Testament. It's, this is not anything new I'm introducing, Nicodemus. And you've been teaching my Old Testament. Covenant Life Church, you've been reading God's Old Testament. It's there. And the reason why you don't get it is because every time you stumble upon it, you reject it. Your heart kicks it out. That's what Jesus just said. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you, what? You do not receive our testimony. You don't receive what's been there all along. Listen to me, stay with me here, because Nicodemus' problem is probably some of our problems this morning. Nicodemus' problem is not his lack of understanding. It's not that this concept is so difficult and Nicodemus isn't smart enough to grasp it. Rather, Nicodemus' problem, Jesus, chapter 2, verses 23, 24, 25, is the what? Knower of all hearts. Jesus says, I'm telling you what the problem is. What I've just told you is all through here. The reason you're dumbfounded, the reason you don't understand is because every time you've come upon it, your heart rejects it. You refuse to accept it. It's one thing to say, I mean, I'm really having a hard time understanding the doctrine of re regeneration from Scripture. That happens. But it's completely another thing to say, it's there, and I'm just not going to believe it. I'm just not going to accept it. I'm not going to teach it. That's not what I grew up with. That's not what I've learned. That's not what I believe. And I'm going to hold tight to what I believe. We were talking about this Wednesday night in our group on Pilgrim's Progress. There's an individual, there's two individuals, obstinate and pliable. Obstinate is that hard-hearted, stubborn one who's just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. And even, with some, even if something correct comes in and exposes I'm wrong, I'm still going to fight. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm going to believe. And that's what, Nicodemus is, what Jesus is saying about Nicodemus here. You're the teacher of the Old Testament. This, what I've told you, is all throughout it. And the reason you're having difficulty with it now is because you have never accepted the testimony that's there. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and, and we need to hear this this morning, there is no lack of teaching or speaking or preaching or testifying to the new birth as a work of God in the life of the soul by His Spirit. There is no lack of teaching of that in the Old Testament. Did you know that? 
Jesus here doesn't say to Nicodemus, well, I understand. It was kind of hinted at, but it wasn't really clearly spelled out, so I get your confusion. Jesus is responding to Nicodemus with, how is it you are a teacher of the Old Testament and you don't understand this? I have inspired prophets who've been teaching and telling and laying out the message of the gospel going all the way back to the book of Genesis. That you must be born again. That you can't do it. You can't do even when your lips say all that the Lord has said we will do. You don't have to go very far in Genesis to find that that being uttered by the people. And then in the blink of an eye, they disobey. They cannot do it. And along the way, God in kindness intervenes and says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to do for them what they can't do for themselves. Nicodemus, how is it you don't don't understand what I'm saying? How is it this is new to you? This has been spoken of by my prophets, by me, by my father, through the prophets countless times. We've given great testimony of these things. And he's not just picking on Nicodemus. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, up until verses 1 through 10, 1 through 9, Jesus has been speaking very clearly, directly, singularly to Nicodemus. In verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. The you there is plural. The you is plural. What does that mean? He's talking to more than just Nicodemus here. He's talking to Nicodemus and all the other leaders of Israel. And he's talking to you and I this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you, plural, you all, you keep refusing me and my testimony. The word that we see there in verse 11, you do not receive our testimony, means to take hold of it and to rethink your understanding of things, and to build your life upon what God has said rather than what somebody else has told you or what you think. Let me say that again. You did not receive. Receive means to take hold of what God has said and to reconfigure your life and build your thinking and your life upon what God has said and no longer what someone else has told you or what you think is right. Jesus here says, I've told you, we've told you about this doctrine, how to be born again, but you did not accept it, cling it, and build your life upon it. Instead, you rejected it and continued to walk down this path in which I'm telling you now, you still need to be born again. Because your salvation, your hope, what you're clinging to is not of me, it's of yourself. But Nicodemus and his religious associates are like many today, happy with their own man-centered efforts. Happy with their understanding of things. So convinced they're right that when Lord God Almighty speaks... And when God Almighty speaks, even creation knows to come into existence. It's smart enough to know when God speaks and says, let there be light, light better come into existence. But what he says to Nicodemus, when I speak, you're going to be so proud and bold as to say, I don't think so. That's not what I believe. The first problem, Jesus, the knower of all hearts, says to Nicodemus, and probably to many of us this morning, The reason you don't get it, the reason you don't understand is not because it hasn't been there all along. It's because you just refuse it. Which brings us to the second thing Jesus says here. 
not only that this doctrine of salvation is wholly the work of God through his spirit, that he's spoken of it time and time again. If you need reference to that, we've talked about it in the previous three weeks. But you can go and look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me just, let me do that for a minute. I didn't intend to do this, but Jeremiah chapter 31, didn't fully. God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will know me. Why does he say that? No longer are they going to have to teach each other. Now, in a different setting, we've talked about this. He's not saying that there's not a need to teach the Bible. He is simply saying that when I do this work, you're not going to have to go around imploring people, love Jesus. I'm going to put the love of Jesus in their heart. They will love Jesus. That will be the mark that I've done that. You're not going to have to go around teaching and telling them. They will. He goes on over in, in Ezekiel. This is a passage we looked at last week. Over in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name. What's he saying there? He's saying, what I'm about to do is not because of you. It's not because I feel sorry for you. You have broken my law. You have made promises to me and you've broken it. What I'm about to do is for my glory. And he goes on. What I'm about to do, I'm doing it for my name, which you have profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares God. I will take you from the nations, I will, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm going to do this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. He just goes on and on. The first person personal pronoun there could not be clearer. What are they doing to achieve any of that? Nothing. Zero. It's exactly what he's saying, Nicodemus. He's not saying, I'm going to do this and then I need you to do this. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus when he's kicking everything out, he's saying, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, didn't you, didn't you understand that? Go back and look at the pronouns. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. What are, what are you doing in those passages? It's clear. Nothing. So Nicodemus, don't come stand before me and bring anything you've done. You can read over in the next page, Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of the dry bones. You have a 
vision of the dry bones dead there that come to life. How is it they come to life? What is breathed into those dead bones? It is the capital S Spirit. Go look at it. The Holy Spirit comes into these and brings life. This is why, this is just a three of, of literally at least I mean, a dozen passages that speak to the work of God and the salvation of a soul. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, how are you the teacher of Israel? You've taught Jeremiah. You've taught Ezekiel. You've told the story of the valley of the dry bones. How do you not know salvation is the work of God's Spirit alone? Christ goes on in verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 3 to lay down before Nicodemus. You say you don't understand. You've come to the right place. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 12, let me start with that. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what it is here that Jesus is saying here, he's saying, Nicodemus, if you don't get this, you can't possibly get other things that I want you to know about, that you need to know about. If you don't get this, that's what he means in verse 12 when he says, if I've told you earthly things. What earthly things is he talking about there? Exactly what he's been talking about. The context gives you the answer, the new birth. That may surprise you a little bit. That's the earthly things he's talking about, the new birth, birth from above. But that's what he's saying, the earthly things. And he's been using earthly things to symbolize it, right? The wind, the water, all of these things are symbolic of the work of the Spirit. If I've been telling you earthly things, the need to be born again, that's earthly. With water, that's earthly. By the, the, like the wind blows, the work of the Spirit. That's if, if you don't under, understand, the, how can you understand the heavenly things? What does he mean by earthly things? J.C. Ryle, I think, provides a great help. Regeneration is a thing that takes place in man here upon the earth. That's why... The new birth here is an earthly thing he's talking. It takes place here upon the earth. In regeneration, God comes down to man upon the earth and dwells with man. And regeneration is a change of which the men of this world have some faint idea, but is illustrated by such earthly figures as birth and water and wind. So he's telling Nicodemus here, if I've told you these earthly things about the new birth and you don't believe this, what does verse 12 say? How can you believe the richer things? Oh, that I want you to know. What richer things? Things deeper than the new birth. The divinity, of my divinity, the Godhead of Jesus. My relationship with the Father. My relationship with the Holy Spirit. The incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection. My plan of redemption propitiation, the kingdom, knowing Jesus. If, if, if you don't understand the new birth, you can't understand these other things. Why? Your heart has to be brought to life to believe those things. 
right? We talk sometimes here about, as Christians, the Christian life is looking unto Jesus, Jesus alone. And I have no doubt that maybe even in this room, some of us respond similarly to those throughout the centuries. Listen, we get it looking unto Jesus. Why do you keep repeating yourself? Because he is all. He's incomprehensible. He is the fullness of the glory of God. He is God's answer to everything. And this is what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. If you don't understand the new birth and being hearts awakened by the Spirit of God to see the beauty of Christ and to know Christ in His fullness, then you're not going to understand when people talk about Christ is all. He's everything. You're going to know great things about Jesus and think, I already know great things about Jesus. You're not going to understand. The heavenly things are the fullness of Christ, who He is, His beauty, His majesty, the life that we have in Him, and plumbing the depths of that. Why? Because only one who's received the new birth, their heart has been opened to believe that. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? This new birth for us, maybe even as we've sat here week after week, you're thinking, this is just, this is those deeper things. This new birth thing, man, these sermons are so academic. They're, why are you making things harder than they have to be? What did Jesus just say to Nicodemus? This is foundational. This is not deep. This is the thing that must be in order to get to the heavenly things. Do you see how our, our own flesh, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, we have rejected this so much so that we've made regeneration a complication of the gospel. We've said that, oh my goodness, man, they've overcome. You just profess faith in Jesus. That's all you got to do. Nicodemus did those things. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again from above. It's not a complication of the gospel. It is the gospel without which you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see the beauty of Christ. It might be that each Lord's Day as we talk about looking unto Jesus in his fullness and his beauty and you're shrugging your shoulders. I just don't get it. I agree with you. I don't disagree. Jesus is important. Could it be, beloved? You've been ensnared like Nicodemus did to a false gospel that has never once. You've seen the majesty of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. There are richer heavenly realities that are to be seen, but you can't see them until you've been born again from above. Jesus is saying, if you don't believe this, if you don't live this, you're not going to get anything else. You're not going to understand my messengers, when I come and they're preaching and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ and Christ is all and looking unto Jesus and his sufficiency and his fullness. It's going to go one in here and out the other. It's going to bounce off your heart like a heart of stone. Why? Because it is a heart of stone. Because you've not been born from above where the Spirit takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that loves Jesus so that when my messenger says, Christ is all, let's explore the depths of Christ. And in the book of Revelation, who cares about the other junk? Look at Christ. You still can't get beyond it because of all the other junk. It has to be Christ alone. Jesus is saying, no one, no one has ascended into heaven except 
me. Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying there? Nicodemus, I get it. You've had smart people who've taught you things. And here I come, and now I'm telling you, you must be born again. And you've rejected this in the Bible. When Ezekiel told you, when Jeremiah told you, when my father told you through various prophets about this, you rejected it. And you've had smart people, and you've had a lifetime. Maybe your parents taught you this is the way of salvation, this is the way. And here I come, and I'm teaching you something different, and you're resisting me. Jesus says, Nicodemus, who do you really want to listen to? We're talking about God's salvation. God's eternal salvation plan before the foundation of the world. Oh, by the way, I was there. Oh, by the way, Nicodemus, there's nobody who better knows God's work of salvation in a soul than me. And he's about to plumb that depth a little bit further here in just a moment. He's saying there in verse 13, none of those teachers who've informed you on how to be saved, none of those ascended into heaven. That's where I'm from, Nicodemus. Go back and read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do we say about that passage there? John is laying out, every time you encounter Jesus, understand it's this Jesus, the one who was eternal with the Father, before the face of God, yet distinct from the Father. Who's better equipped to talk to you about how my Father will will forgive your sins against Him when He doesn't have to? How about someone who was there with Him? And he and I, in a covenant of grace, covenanted together along with the Spirit, we covenant together to accomplish for you what you could never do on your own. That's what he's saying in verse 13 here. Nicodemus, I get it, you don't understand. You've been rejecting my message. You've been clinging to what you've been taught, what you've been told by others. It's not your experience. Let me deconstruct that for you. I'm the one who's from where God is. I'm eternal. I'm here because I came from there. And I'm here because I'm executing God's plan of salvation. And I'm the one telling you, you must be born again by the work of my spirit or you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is simply saying here, he's Alluding to Proverbs chapter 30, and also in the book of Genesis, the the ladder between heaven and earth and Jacob's vision, he's saying, I'm the ladder. If you want to get to where my father is, I'm the ladder. I'm the middleman between where we are here and where my father is. And if there's any hope of being where my father is, knowing him, rejoicing him eternally, you have to come through me. And this is what I'm telling you. You must be born again by the Spirit of God or you have no place here. 
Christ's heavenly origin. Jesus is marking himself off from every other good teacher in mankind. I'm the one who's infinitely full of wisdom. I'm the one who is God. I am the one who embodies wisdom. I'm the one telling you, your way of getting into the eternal kingdom won't work. This is the only way. Being born from above. And it's only now, after establishing one, Nicodemus, how do you not know this? Right? This is where we began. Nicodemus saying, how can these things be? Number one, how can you know this? How can you not know this? And then number two, saying, I am the one who's telling you these things. The one who originates in heaven and earth. Now, in verses 14 and 15, he really comes to the answer itself. Jesus explains to Nicodemus using an analogy from a text, well, Nicodemus should know, but then again, he should have known regeneration too. But a text that Nicodemus did know Coming over from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, Jesus says this to him, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's he describing here? He goes all the way back to Numbers 21. You have here the people of God who by grace and mercy have been brought out of Egypt into the wilderness. Now they're complaining against God, right? They're complaining. They're sinning against God. They're sinning against Moses. They're complaining against him. They're filled with anger. Why? Because the wilderness is hard. Back when they were in slavery, they at least had food to eat. They had shelter over their head. They had certain luxuries, if we can use that term, that in the wilderness they just don't have. And there's even a a sense in which they'd rather go back to slavery, go back to the kingdom of darkness than to continue on by God's grace, the kingdom of God. You think God, who does everything for his glory, is happy to hear those complaints and that grumbling against him? Absolutely not. God becomes angry with his people and he sends poisonous snakes to go into into their camp and those who grumbled against God were bitten by these poisonous snakes. Many of them were killed. In a moment of desperation, as God's judgment continues to pour out upon the people in the wilderness because these poisonous snakes are are, are God's judgment, they're biting and killing people, the people then turn and confess their sins. They confess and ask that Moses, would you go to God and ask that these serpents be taken away? Did God take away the serpents? Trick question. No. What he did do was provide a remedy. Through what? The Lord told Moses to take bronze and to craft a snake. Very interesting, especially in light of what we're seeing here. Craft a bronze snake, put it on a staff or pole, or put it up so that people can see. Anyone who was bitten by one of the poisonous snakes would be healed if they looked, key word there, looked upon the bronze serpent. One commentator says this uh, act of looking is both a confession and a repentance. I think it's MacArthur who says this. It's both a confession and a repentance of their guilt. They're looking to God for what only God can do. Because if there were a way for them to survive those poisonous snakes on their own, you better believe they tried. But they're desperate. They realize there's nowhere else to turn. John 3, right? Nothing else you can do. you got to look to God. 
And God tells Moses, have them look upon the bronze serpent and they will be healed. With that story in mind, John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is doing here is helping Nicodemus to understand what that story of Moses and the Israelites and the serpents was all about. Jesus goes back to that story, back to the display of God's grace and mercy, even though his people didn't deserve it. He's going back to that display of mercy to teach Nicodemus that just like Moses lifted up the servant or the serpent in the wilderness, and people looked to the serpent and were healed, so too my father did that for a reason. That wasn't just a neat little curious thing he did. Verse 14, as Moses, just like Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's telling him that whole story was about me. That whole story was about me. That bronze serpent was me, which again goes back to it's a serpent and an allusion to Christ. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, let's go back to that Numbers passage. You and all your religious leaders have been so bitten and wounded by sin and your depravity. You have a need to be healed, and you're trying to heal yourself. You're trying through all your religion, through all your works, and you don't know that just like those poisonous snakes killed people in the wilderness, Your sin has killed you spiritually. You are dead. Just like I told you up in verses 1 through 8, there is nothing you can do. Zero. You are dead. Just like those who were bitten by the serpent. You're standing here before me, Nicodemus. Yes, you're physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. You and all your religion and all your works and all the right things you say about me. I, chapter 2, verses 23, 24, 25, look into your heart and I see deadness. You must be born again. But Nicodemus, just like that serpent was God's grace, I am God's grace to you. Your question, what must I do? Answer. To use the author of Hebrews, look unto Jesus. Look unto me. This is why we don't have any hesitation kind of consolidating the gospel down to look unto Jesus. Because this is Jesus' response to Nicodemus. What must I do? Look unto Jesus. Look at me lifted up. I am God's mercy to you. I am God's grace to you. I too, like that serpent, must be lifted up. Lifted up where? How? It's obvious, isn't it? The cross. I must be lifted up to die. I must be lifted up on the pole, on the cross. I must be put to death. You ask, how can this be? I, who am from my Father's right hand, tell you, this is God's plan of redemption, and there is no other way. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to say. There's nothing for you to cling to. 
the work of the Spirit of God does one thing. And out of that one thing comes a slew of other things, but it all comes down to one thing. What's that one thing? It opens your eyes to behold the one on the cross. Not just the event of the cross, but the one on the cross, recognizing who that one is. Recognizing he is God, he is perfect. There's nothing he's done to deserve that. And why is he there? Because this is God's plan of saving some for his glory. Putting upon that one something that he didn't do, something that those he saved have done. And punishing him in their place. Jesus must be lifted up to pay for the sin debt that must be paid for. Because Nicodemus, you're just like everybody else. Uh, Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews chapter 9, what hope do we have? All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus says in response to what must I do, Nicodemus, you don't do anything. I do everything. I will be lifted up. And when I get lifted up, I will take the Father's wrath upon myself. I will satisfy the Father's wrath and taking that punishment upon myself. Propitiation. Nicodemus, you've been bitten by the sting of sin. Your question, how can these things be? How can salvation come to one like me? You remember that probing question we asked the very first week? How do you respond to prove that you're a Christian? Two ways to answer. Well, I did this or... God did this. How did Jesus just respond to that? How can these things be? Jesus says, not Nicodemus, you have to. He says, like the bronze serpent was lifted up, so too must the Son of Man be. How can these things be? I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that. I will go to the cross. And do what none of your works, your efforts, your goodness, your religion, your history, your lineage, what none of that can do, I'll do it all. And those who by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit, believe in me, verse 15 says, will have eternal life. This is the first time we bumped upon eternal life in John's gospel. It is a theme. What is eternal life? It's not just uh, paradise. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. Does anyone know what it is? That they know you, the one true God, and your son whom you have sent. Eternal life, it's all about God. And that in itself makes it paradise, but just not the way we tend to think of it. Nicodemus, what must you do? Look unto Jesus. Look unto him. And if you're looking unto Jesus, stay with me here, we're just about done. 
If you're looking to Jesus and it, you just don't get it, like you look to Jesus and you think, okay, I get it. He died for my sins. He rose. Anybody can rehearse those facts. The work of the Spirit of God, you look, you behold, and He becomes everything to you. Christianity is not just a religion of knowing the facts. It's one of affection, of loving God in Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And where the Holy Spirit of God has brought that work, that one will look and see and savor and want and desire and rejoice in and be conformed to that one. But you must look to the Son of Man and beg and plead, God, open my eyes to see. Send your Spirit to do what I can't do. And the work of the Gospel upon the soul as we close is this. This lifting up of the sun is only the start. That's only step one. This lifting up of Jesus is never ending in the life of the believer. Christ will continue to be lifted up. He's lifted up in the resurrection. He's lifted up in the ascension. He's lifted up at the Father's right hand. He's lifted up as those around the throne rejoice in Him and likewise for the true believer. The lifting up of Jesus is our life. That's the work of the Spirit. Not that there was one time, one moment where you professed your, faith, your sins and faith in Jesus and then you went on just doing your own thing. The Son as man is lifted up on the cross so that He will be lifted up perpetually in the hearts and minds of His people throughout all eternity. How is it between your soul and Christ? Is He being lifted up? 